okay, so like when, when I get to heaven, like me and God, we'll have a lot of catching up to do. I don't really, you know, I don't really talk to him now, but I'm sure he'll meet me at the gates and we'll uh, lock arms and walk in and we'll, we'll just have a little chat. But Revelation is about right now. And what's going on in this chapter is, is like the whole creation is worshiping God. Uh, I'm going to read to you just a little section starting in uh, chapter 5, verse 11. It says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, that's Jesus, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And all the elders fell down and worshipped him. Guys, that's going on right now. As somebody who, who leads worship and, and whatever, whatever that means, um, it takes all the pressure off for me. I don't have to lead you in worship because all of creation, everything is worshiping God at this moment. And so when I read a passage like this, we can see that worship is something that is, is, is so epic and so huge. But I wonder sometimes how many of us really worship God in our lives. Um, as, as somebody who leads songs here, sometimes I walk off the stage and I'm like, what, what did we do here? Like, did we sing some songs together? I mean, what, what was really going on? And so I want to look at, at a passage that I think talks to us about worship. Uh, you'll find that in John chapter 4. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've, you've probably heard this passage talked about. We're going to pray that God will... Uh, Make it fresh for us here this morning. If you guys will pray with me, that would be awesome. Uh, Father, we're open to your word here this morning. Father, we pray that you'll speak to us. God, we pray your spirit would move, Lord, that we would allow you to be um, just God in this moment. And so, God, as we, as we read about your son, as we see God in the flesh, Lord, help us to see your truth, God. Lord, don't let us harden our hearts here this morning, but Father, help us. We praise you. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right, John chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. It starts here. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, the sixth hour in John's terminology is, is noon, Okay? So keep that in mind. That's going to be important here a little later. Um, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So immediately the stage is kind of set, right? There's, there's this seems to be some sort of reason that Jews and Samaritans don't associate with one another. Now, this, this goes back to this sort of deep-seated, deep-rooted uh, tension uh, that, that takes place stemming from the Old Testament. So, after Solomon died in 922, uh, the kingdom of Israel, the children of Abraham, split into two kingdoms. They had like a north and a south. 
Um, and eventually, in 722, the Assyrians marched on the northern kingdom, which was Israel, dominated them, destroyed them, um, and then uh, kind of scattered their people throughout the empire, the Assyrian empire. As this happened, the, the people who had been part of the northern kingdom began to uh, intermarry. They would marry with people who weren't uh, descendants of the nation of Israel. And so the Jews, who were part of the southern kingdom, uh, began to see these people as these sort of like half-breed betrayers. And so there's this deep-seated animosity, especially on the part of the Jews, towards the Samaritans. This is why the story of the Good Samaritan would have been so shocking um, for the people who, who were listening to Jesus tell it. Because the question would have been, could there really be a Good Samaritan? Like, is that possible? Like, could there be a good driver from Pennsylvania? I mean... So Jesus is addressing... Yeah, get out of the left lane. Seriously. No. Um, Jesus is addressing this racial tension. He's meeting it. He's confronting it one-on-one here right now in this story. And so he asks the woman for a drink. And the woman says, like, you, you ever have somebody ask you to do something you don't want to do? So, like, the, the, Jesus, like, this woman's completely expecting Jesus not to talk to her because he's a Jew. And so then he asks for a drink. And she's like, dang it, I don't want to get this guy a drink. But that's, that's probably not what's going on there. That's just my world. Um, she a- Jesus asked her for a drink. And then look at what happens here in verse 10. Uh, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Look at her response. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and flocks and herds? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Now this, this term, living water, is not, is not an empty metaphor for the people there. Uh, it, it would have connoted this sort of moving water. Um, anybody want to drink stagnant, dry, stale water? No? Um, I, I, was, I was camping with a friend of mine, and I, I kid you not, uh, we were, you know, I, I had this rule about camping. Uh, I only go with people who know what they're doing, because uh, otherwise I'll get eaten by bears. I'm, I'm fairly convinced of this. Um, and so... We're camping, and we're, we're kind of, we've hiked in about six miles or something like that, and we, did, we didn't really bring much water because, I mean, you know, far be it for us to be prepared, but he has this, like, magic pump thing that, like, I, and I have no idea how this works, so if you know, just, just shake your head, uh, but he, he, he can pump water basically out of anything, and it'll purify it. Uh, it's, it's pure witchcraft. I have no idea how this works. Um, so, like, we look around for a while just trying to find something like a, you know, a stream or something, you know, like you, you envision in your mind when you think of the mountains, like, just flowing. Uh, is what I had in mind. We find a tire track, uh, and apparently it had rained, like, in the last four days, and there's a little bit of water sitting in this. And so he pulls out his pump and pumps the water in, hands me a cup, and says, here, th- that'll be fine. I'm like, no, no, no way, dude. Like, I can see parasites doing backstroke in that, like, water. I see them. They're swimming in there. He's like, no, it'll be fine. Um, we don't want to drink stagnant water. Now, this, this woman lived in the town. Like, Jesus is not from Samaria. She knew where all the sources of water were in her area. She also knew that there was no moving water anywhere close to where they were. And so she's like, dude, you don't even have a cup. Where are you going to get this living water? 
But Jesus begins to sort of unveil the fact that he's not maybe talking about what she thinks he's talking about. Notice again what he says in verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. And I want to talk today about three things I think may keep us from worshiping God for who he is. Um, And the first one we, we sort of come to in this particular passage. It says that everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. The first obstacle, the first thing I think that keeps us from entering into real intimacy with God is the fact that we're just digging in the wrong well. You're looking in the wrong place, the wrong thing to satisfy you. Let me, let me show you what I mean. I think there's three that I'm going to kind of highlight that may be true for a lot of us. Uh, the first one is, is comfort and security. Like if you ask any American what, what sort of the purpose of your life would be, I would, I would venture to say that in some, in some way they would, they would sort of elaborate it to say that basically to be happy. Uh, to find a good wife, to have a good job, to have a house, to have a dog, to have kids. Like, it's, it's a sense of that, that the world sort of revolves around our comfort and our um, security. Um, there's this idea that if, if I just had more money, I'd be more free to do the things, uh, t- to not work as much so I could serve God more, right? Um, the only problem with that line of thinking, with thinking that, okay, if God would just give me more money, then, then all my problems would go away is that I know too many rich people who are absolutely miserable. Um, I heard a stat the other day about, this is about professional athletes, but these guys who had made $5 million in their career playing football, 90% of them were bankrupt um, after their playing careers. $5 million. So here's what I did. I was like, hey, God, like you've kind of tried the football player thing. Like what if you started giving pastors $5 million? And let's see how it goes, right? So I'm in negotiations right now, currently trying to, Get my contract worked out. Leadership team, you guys can do what you do. Um, but we think that, that somehow that money is this sort of magic elixir that's going to fix all of our problems. Um, and so we, we begin to think that our comfort, our security is really what life's about. Um, you know, it almost boils down to some of the biggest questions you can ask about your life. Like, what is the most important thing uh, about life? Um, Again, I think most Americans would say to be happy. And then I kind of ask the question this way. You parents in here, what is the most important thing that you could give your kids? What, what is the thing that you find yourself praying for, that you, that you find yourself pushing them towards? Is it, is it a good education? Is it so they can go to some school and, and get $120,000 in debt and spend most of their first part of their life paying that back? Not that I have any experience with that. Is it that you, uh, you pray for them to have a, a good husband or a good wife that will take care of them? What is the most important thing in your kid's life? Because the more I read the Bible, the more I see that my comfort and my security, there, there are a few things that are as at odds with who God is than my comfort and my security. Like, read the Bible. Paul's not writing from a, a, a Mediterranean villa while he's eating grapes. He's like, I write to you from prison. Nobody has come to see me. Thank you guys, you jerks. But still, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's how Paul rolls. Um, There is nothing that puts us as at odds with who God is as our own comfort and our security. We see this in the story of the rich young ruler. He comes to God and he says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him a couple softballs. He's like, hey, just don't kill anybody, all right? Cool. All right, I got that. 
But then he says, hey, okay, one more thing. Why don't you sell everything you have? And the man walks away sad. When God begins to get at our comfort, our security, and, and, and even more so our time, like a lot of us will just throw money at stuff. We're like, yeah, you guys are going to Haiti? Sweet, do it, you know? But man, when you, when you talk about, oh, you want my Saturday afternoon? Man, we don't want to give that up, do we? And, and, and that's one of the best things about going to places where people are hurting and are broken. If you're going to go to a person who is from a broken family, if you're going to deal with people who are dealing with addictions, if you're going to deal with marital problems, your comfort and your security are the first things to go. Heck, if you're going to deal with teenagers, um, those things will go in a hurry. Because you're going to see how much God has to do in this world. And so the first well, the first thing I think we kind of dig in and we say, okay, if I can just get my 401k here, then I'll do all this stuff for God. Uh, this, this first well that we're drinking from that isn't going to satisfy is sort of this idea that if I have the right education, if I have the right money, if I have the right um, sort of things going on in my life, then I'll, I'll do this for you. Uh, the second well, relationships and sex. Ladies, there's not a man out there who's going to complete you. Like, I don't care what the notebook says. Like, I don't care what all these... uh, The the romantic comedies, my gosh. Like, it's the same story every time. Guy's a little quirky. He doesn't quite know that girl loves him. Stuff happens. Eventually, they confess their love for each other. Like, the the movie could have been 30 seconds long. Um, Anyway. My wife's not here. I can get away with a lot this morning. But... Relationships and sex. These things, guys, there's no woman that will complete you. Ladies, there are many men who will treat you well, who will love you the way that you're supposed to be loved, but they will do things that will deeply hurt you. And I think if we're honest, you will uh, want to physically hurt them. Um, Men, there are women who are, are beautiful, amazing women who will encourage you and love you and respect you, but they can say things that will cut you to your core. There's not a man out there, there's not a woman out there who is going to complete you. When I start taking things to Courtney that only God can do, it only causes problems in our relationship. When I start going to her for my validation, for her to to show um, signs of respect or whatever that may be, that's stuff only God can do. And so relationship, I think, in so many ways, so violently exposed this fact that we drink from the wrong well all the time. Because every time, you know, I have a disagreement, it's, it's probably, you know, it's not my fault, it's your fault, right? And how many of our arguments are based on who's right and who's wrong? But drink it from the wrong well. You're looking to people to satisfy things that only God can satisfy. This, this takes a, a, an even darker turn when we start talking about God has given you your, your sexual desires. Like, that's okay, right? Like, this is a good thing. But we have warped this appetite into something that it was never intended to be. And so many men are struggling with with pornography, looking outside of the marriage relationship, looking outside of something that God has designed in order to fill a need. And Jesus is saying, it's never going to fill you. It's never going to do what it promises to do. And so many of us just kind of sit there in bondage because we're looking to something that, that, that can't deliver on what it promises. There's nobody out there who's going to complete you. There's no relationship that you don't have. Single people want to be married. Married people, I hope, don't, not all the time, but sometimes want to be single. 
Um, you know, and guys, we think that, okay, like if I just, if my wife would just be the way I want her to be, like if I would come home and she would be, you know, scantily clad and uh, watching football and grilling steaks, then this would be good, right? Ladies, if, if, you know, if my man would just work out his abs a little bit, change our kids' diapers and, you know, bring me flowers every day, this would, this would be okay. But we, relationships expose us for what we are. We kind of have this weird, twisted thing where we always want what we don't have. So, guys, if you had that girl every day, like, you would begin to fantasize about some girl who, who wore, like, bathrobes all the time with rollers in her hair. Like, this is what we do. Because it's not other people. It's not them. It's you that's broken. It's you. So sex, relationship, I think we, we go over and over again looking to people for affirmation, looking for them to fill something that only God can do. Uh, the third thing, um, and this is a, a little bit more, um, I think, sort of a, a, a new representation of an old thing. Um, but there's this, there's this idea that happiness is our compass. So I call it the cult of happiness. Um, and so this works itself out in, like, amongst college students. They're just like, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Right? Like, I'm going to drink every night. Um, and, and a lot of guys my age, like, like think that, they, that somehow commitment is the worst possible reality. And so they think that they're going to spend their 20s getting with as many girls as they can, and then when they finally have to commit. And the worst part is, we've tried to convince girls that this is normal. Girls, it's not normal. It's, it's, it's absolutely boyish, immature behavior. And so we do whatever feels right. Um, in, in another sense, it's sort of this uh, idea that there's some hidden you underneath that you have to uncover, right? It's this kind of Oprah Winfrey, Deepak Chopra, like the secret, like, and basically what it's telling you is that if your response could just be to choose to be happy in every situation, then you would be uh, better off. Um, so, yes, my dog just got run over by a car, but I'm so happy about that right now, and I'm choosing to be happy, and I'm making my reality positive and what I want it to be. But the problem with that is, is it ultimately depends on you. It depends on you, and you will fail. Nobody is a worse enemy to yourself than you are. But God, Jesus is saying that you keep drinking from these wells, man, it's not going to satisfy. But look at what he says in verse 14. He says, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, look, you can keep drinking salt water. You can keep trying to, to fill your heart with things that are ultimately going to leave you depressed and, and in despair. Or, or you can take what I'm offering. Let's move on here. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, this is a request I can appreciate. Because in the first century, it was the job of a woman to, to draw the water. So the first thing she does in the morning with the sunrise, she goes and gets water. This is true for a, a huge percentage of our world still today. Like, next week we're leaving to go to Haiti. And that's what the women do. They, they head out and they draw water. So in a very real sense, she's like, okay, if I could get this water that never runs out, that's one chore I don't have to do every day, right? Like she's thinking very pragmatically. But also, okay, what time was it? Noon. When do you think the best time to draw water is? Early in the morning. Why? I mean, you guys are from New Jersey. If it gets like above 82 degrees here, you're like, it's so hot outside. I'm melting, right? 
the, I do the opposite when it's cold. I'm like, oh, gosh, please make it stop. Um, yeah, it, it's hot outside. This is the Mediterranean. It's not the worst climate in the world, but uh, it's hot. And so you go early in the morning. You go right before, uh, right before the sun goes down. Now, it's noon. Now, in the first century, this, this was actually not a real burden for women because uh, most of their life was confined to the household. For most of their life, they were sort of tasked to do things around the house, fold the laundry, all that stuff. So, guess what the, the opportunity to go to the well was? That's right. It's ladies' night, right? Like, it's, and you know, what's, you know what's going on here. They're chatting about dude's camel and, you know, how that guy's got a, you know, a blue turban on, or, you know, whatever that may be. But, yeah, there's, this is the time where people can go and, and socialize for, for people who, who may have been isolated. But this woman is all alone at the well. It's noon. And we're going to see why she's there. He told her, go call your husband and come back. She said, I have no husband. Jesus said, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. I love this line. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. I mean, even the guys would have figured that one out. I mean, just say it. Jesus is, is pointing out the facts of her life. And he says, okay, go, go get your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You've had five husbands. Now, the fact that this woman uh, would have had like five divorces would have been highly, highly irregular uh, in this time period. They would have stopped at like three and just been like, all right, you're, you're done. Um, but notice there's no condemnation here. There's not Jesus saying, you are a wicked sinner, that you are, are an adulterer. He's just laying out the facts. And sometimes when we encounter Jesus, he just lays out the facts for us and says, well, here's who I am, and here's where you are. And that's what he's doing here. He doesn't say anything condemning, but he just shows her the facts of her life. And so the second obstacle, the second barrier, I think, that we encounter when it comes to worshiping God is unconfessed, unrepentant sin. We think that um, God just kind of, we kind of go on with God, we do things that are short of who he is, and we're just like, all right, let's just, let, let's, we'll just kind of forget about that. We don't bring that to him. Um, and here's what we've done with sin, right? So sin is like things like killing and stealing and all those things I don't do, right? I'm not an adulterer, so God must be so happy to have me on his team. Because, man, I'm so glad that you're not running around killing people. That's great. Thank you. So glad we picked you up. But sin, sometimes, is, is, is something much more subtle than that. Like, guys, if, if there's never anything in your heart that, that desires or longs to worship God, like, don't you think that might be something along those lines? But we, we make sin out to be just all those big things that we don't do. But maybe God is saying, no, you're, you're, a failure to have a heart for me is falling short of who I am. Unconfessed, unrepentant sin uh, will affect your nearness to God. And it's not God's fault. It's not God saying, oh, stay away from me. No, he sent his son to the cross for you so that you could have access to the Father. That is what that's about. But we deny the very thing that God has offered us for, for proximity, for intimacy. When we say, oh, I'm just going to handle this on my own. Like, God, you can't have this part of me. Unconfessed, unrepentant sin keeps us out of God's presence. But it's not God keeping us out of his presence. It's us. Look at Psalm 51. 
David writes this psalm after he uh, has committed adultery with Bathsheba. And I want you to notice what happens here. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What is that? It's confession. It's saying, God, I, I have fallen short in your eyes. I have removed myself from your presence. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Look at where this is moving. It's moved from confession. God, I have done evil in your sight. To a place of rejoicing. Renew these bones that have been crushed. Renew me in your sight. Make me something new. And that's what God does. Look, guys, like, sometimes we just have to bring those things before Him. And say, God, I know. I know I haven't been doing everything that, that is right in your sight. And what you'll see is that these sort of big sins, these things that we consider like, oh, I used to do that, but now I, I don't, um, start to give way to these little things. Like, oh, I, I didn't realize that was still in my heart. Like, that's, that's still where we are, God. But we think that, okay, because I don't kill people, because I don't steal, that I'm a good person, and God has to love me in that way. But if you don't know Him, then what, why did Jesus come? He could have just given you the law. But He's saying unconfessed, unrepentant sin will keep you. It'll keep you going to the well at noon, all alone, in isolation. Out of confession springs worship. And that's what's happening there in Psalm 51. David is confessing his sin. And God is creating in him a clean heart. Alright, let's go back to John chapter 4. I'll only make you turn one more time, I promise. Verse 20. Our fathers, this is the woman talking still, worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declares... Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. And so the third barrier, the third thing I think that keeps us from, from honoring God and from worshiping Him for who He is, is, is the simple fact of what's going on here. Jesus says that, no, your worship is improper. The, the, the things that you're holding on to, um, she's talking about a specific mountain in Samaria. These things are not what will save you. They're not what God has designed for you to know Him. And He's saying that a, a time is coming when all of this will change. So the third thing, I think, is just that sometimes we're ignorant of who God is. Right? And this, this goes from people who don't ever go to church to people who sit in church every week. Right? Like, you could sit here every week and still not really know God. You're, you're, you're aware of that, right? Like, this doesn't save you. Walking through those doors, like, that's a, that's, that'd be a weird religion. Um, coming here once a week is all you need to do. Um, but so often, that's how we treat God. 
Like, if this is the only time that you encounter God, if this is the only time that you seek out the character and nature of God, uh, you know, again, I, I don't know where that puts you. We, uh, we're constantly creating God in our own image. We want to take all, out all the parts that we don't like. Oh, I don't, oh, Jesus, don't, don't say that. Oh, let's, let's give you a little makeover here. Let's cut your hair here. Oh, look, Jesus has lost weight. Look how good he looks. We, we constantly try, try to make God who we want him to be. Oh, I don't like that part about God, so I'm going to leave that alone. Um, Old Testament, what's going on there, right? And when we constantly take Jesus and try to mold him and shape him to who we want him to be, and then, and then we strip him of all his power, his divinity, he's no longer turning over tables, he's just carrying little lambs around, and we wonder why we're bored on Sunday morning. Constantly remaking and molding God in our own image will only rob him of his power in our lives. Timothy describes it as, Paul describes it to Timothy as, as having the form of godliness but lacking its power. Yeah, we, we have the form of godliness. We come to church, but does God have any power in our lives? Or we stripped him of all of that saying, no, I'm just, I'm going to do my own thing, God. I mean, I'll, I'll come to church. I'll even write a check. But don't, don't start asking me for my comfort. Don't start asking me for my relationship. When we constantly make God in our own image, we rob him of his divinity, of his power. Uh, I think the last thing that so many of us need is another Bible study. Like, for many of us, it's not that God just hasn't revealed the whole truth to you. It's you haven't done anything with the truth that he showed you. And so we wonder why worship seems so dry and so far off. and it, like, it, like it's from another planet. Like it has nothing to do with us. It's because there is nothing in our lives that is being lived out. And so those are the three barriers I see to worship. Digging in the wrong well, unconfessed, unrepentant sin, and not seeing God for who He is. Just, just being ignorant of Him. And we could choose to be ignorant. But let's, let's look at what Jesus says the worship is. So what is it? I'm going to start there in verse 23. He goes on, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So, I love this, because I find that there's a couple different sorts of people, especially as, a, as, a, as somebody who stands up here and looks at you a lot as, as you're singing. Um, there's, the, uh, there's the people who are sort of the intellectual type, who are like, I'm, you know, I know these musicians think they can move us with their emotional stuff, and I am going to sit here, and I'm going to be... As, as reserved, and I'm going to reflect on who God is. And there's nothing wrong with that, really. Uh, and then there's the emotional people who, like, have the flags, and they're, like, in the aisle and dancing around, and you're like, that person makes me a little uncomfortable. Um, and so we, have, we tend to have different dispositions, right? Like, you may, and most of us probably uh, sort of think of ourselves as the intellectual type, if we're being honest. Uh, but some people are like, man, why are, you, why are you always reading? Why are you always trying to, uh, tr- trying to talk about doctrine? Like, what, what difference does it make? God has saved us. He is so good. And then others uh, are like, dude, like, could you just calm down with the, uh, the pom-poms there? Um, and so we tend to have different dispositions. But what, God is, what Jesus is doing here in this passage is he is joining those two. He's saying worship in spirit and in truth. Um, worship I- I- from a place of an experience with God that you have known God, that you know that He has saved you, that He has made you something new. Uh, the Spirit in the Bible is, is, is about Him recreating, Him about making things new. But also worship from a place of truth, 
Like, you have no excuse just to be ignorant with God. Just like, well, you know, God has revealed himself in the Bible. He's given us a, a community of believers to know him, but not for you. Like, you just go on doing the, the little uh, emotional sort of thing. No, he's given us both, spirit and in truth. And Jesus is saying, this is what worship, true worship, looks like. Uh, let's turn over to Romans 12, 1 and 2. We kind of bring it down here this morning. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Verse 2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so God is saying, look, if you're... If your worship is, is, is stale, if it's, if it's dry, if it's boring, it's not God's fault. It's not that God hasn't shown himself to you. It's that we keep going back to the same things that will not save us. And so Romans 12, 1 and 2 uh, is inviting us into sort of a new reality. I'm going to invite Craig and the guys to come up as we sort of wrap up the service the way that we do each week. But if you feel, if you felt that way, if you feel like God is not speaking, that he's not uh, doing anything in your life, if you feel like you come to church and it's kind of a, uh, you don't really know what's going on, um, I would invite you, I would invite you to maybe search your heart a little bit. Because again, this is not about something that, that God is asking you to do. It's not God saying, well, hey, when you get all this figured out, then you come back and see me and we'll talk. No, God has done the figuring out. He has done the work in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, if there's something in you that, that, that is just, you feel like you're missing it, maybe you need to pray, God, help me. Help me to want to know you. Help me to want to love you. Help me. If you're here this morning and, and, and you just don't know who God is, like... You're like, oh man, this is, this is crazy. Like The fact that God uh, would see my heart for what it is and wickedness and still save me anyway. Uh, his call is for you. Jesus has invited us to see him for who he is. And that's what happens in this passage. If you read on in the rest of John 4, this woman who nobody would have anything to do with, she goes back to the town and, and tells everybody about who Jesus is. And there's kind of a little revival that happens. The whole town sort of explodes in, in, in adoration and in worship of who God is. And so maybe for you today, you don't know who Christ is, and, and that reality, that, that spirit is speaking to you this morning. Um, there's going to be a couple people over there by the cross if you want to meet them and talk to them a little more about what's going on. Uh, it's not weird, don't worry. Um, there'll be people standing, you'll be able to hide. Maybe for, I think for a lot of us, and kind of the reason I, I sort of landed on this passage is, I, you know, I, I lead worship here. I'm the song leader. I see sort of the, the looks, the sort of like, you know, it, it just doesn't feel like we're worshiping God sometimes. Um, and, and that may be a little bit overarching. It may be a little bit overly um, condemning. But guys, if there's nothing in your heart that's going on between Sunday at 1130 and Sunday next week at 10, then we're not worshiping God. Isaiah 1 says, stop your songs. If you're not taking care of the broken and the hurting, then don't, don't sing. And so he's inviting us into his story, into um, the, the brokenness of the world with light and with truth. 
But if we're just going to take it for ourselves and walk around every day just like, well, I'm not going to talk to anybody about Jesus because that would be weird. Then why are we here? Then what's the point of what we're doing? We're a country club. I like you guys, so that's cool. But God has so much more for us. And so we're inviting you into that reality. And so if that's you, if you just feel like worship has been stale and been dry, guys, I invite you to to read the word and say, God, just speak to me. Lord, lay out the facts of my life, just like you did with this woman, and say, okay, here's where your life doesn't line up. Because he will speak. Guys, I'm not God's cheerleader. It's not my, my job here today to somehow convince you that you need to worship God more. I can't do that. Um, I can't speak to your heart. I can't move your heart. But God can. And I'm confident that he does those sorts of things. And so that's why I get up here and put that on the line. Because God is able. He is good enough. And so if you're here this morning, uh, while we're singing this last song, and you just feel like, man, I just, I haven't really given my heart over to God in worship. You know, I invite you to maybe investigate. Is there something, one of those wells, one of those things that's keeping me from worshiping God? We always want to invite you, if you haven't known the salvation that God offers, um, this is a time for you. It's a time of redemption, of new life. And so uh, I'm going to invite you guys to stand with me. Again, if you feel like God is speaking to your heart, there's going to be some people over there to meet with you there. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love in our lives, God. Lord, help us to worship you. God, it's not because of what we do, it's not because of who we are, but because of what you've done and who you are, Father. And so, Lord, we, we ask that in this moment, God, even now as we, as we have an opportunity to worship corporately together, God, that you would be speaking, that your spirit would be moving, Father. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you and we pray that your word would continue to speak to us. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer, if you want to talk more about knowing Christ, we'll meet you over there. Let's sing together.